Welcome to Season 5 of the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we talk with enterprise and technology platform leaders about the people, processes, and platforms that make marketing and customer experience successful, scalable, and sustainable. This is what creates an Agile brand. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom, advisor and consultant for Fortune 1000 marketing and CX leaders and teams as principal and chief strategist at GK5A and best-selling author, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and Agile certified coach. The Agile Brand Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to teksystems.com. To sign up for the Agile Brand newsletter and get the latest insights and articles on marketing technology and CX, or to purchase a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, go to gregkillstrom.com. You can also find all my books on Amazon and other retailers. And now on to the show. I'm excited to talk with my guest today on a special episode brought to you by the Office of Experience, a design-driven, digital-first, vertically integrated, and collaborative agency that believes in the power of ideas and the strength of people. As marketers, we all know that it's not enough to create a really compelling seeming campaign. It has to perform and continue to perform to be successful. Today, we're going to talk about media sufficiency and why it's important for marketing campaign success. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Austin Frederick, Director of Digital Media at the Office of Experience. Austin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this with you. Uh, Why don't we get started with you giving a little background on yourself as well as uh, what you're currently doing in your role at the Office of Experience. Yeah, sure. So my name's Austin. I I lead our our marketing and media teams here at OX. I've spent my entire career in the delight that is uh, marketing and media. So I've worked extensively across both like B2B and B2C clients, both like direct response goals, as well as large nationwide brand awareness campaigns. So here at OX, I spent a lot of time making sure that we're dialing in the right media tactics for our clients, spending the right amount of money against those media tactics to get the results that our clients want. Hopefully that's all uh, marketing and media directors, but it's also me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, yeah, let's let's get started um, in our conversation and let's get started talking about media sufficiency. And first, for those maybe a little less familiar with that term, can you provide a, a definition of what exactly media sufficiency is, what it means, and, and why is this important for advertisers and marketers to understand? Yeah, absolutely. So media, media sufficiency is the amount of money that an advertiser needs to spend in a platform like Facebook or TikTok or Google Ads in order to drive the results that you're looking for. So the example that I usually give is, uh, say, if both you and me, Greg, we're, we want to buy ads in Sports Illustrated, all right? And I go out and I buy the smallest postage stamp ad on the last page of Sports Illustrated, and you buy three full-page ads across the entire issue, right? Both of us can say, hey, we bought in Sports Illustrated. We did the advertising. It's great. But one of our ad buys is going to be a lot more effective, And it's likely going to be the person who bought a lot more real estate there, right? So communicating that back to uh, digitally, this means that, you know, we want to find that balance between the postage stamp ad on the last page and three full page ads. But we want to find that on Google and TikTok and Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So to help to determine that 
uh, you know, to what, what that threshold is and, and, and all, um, let's start with the campaign planning stage. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how do you figure out what guidance to have? Are there benchmarks available? Like, how do you, how do you start knowing that you're, you're going to learn over, over the course of a campaign, but where do you start with, you know, maybe benchmarking similar campaigns? Yeah, you you hit it right on the nose there. It, it comes down to two different pieces, both benchmarking, understanding how campaigns have run in the past, and then also understanding audience size, which I know we'll talk about a little bit more here in the future. When it comes to benchmarking, this is where an agency or a vendor partner can be really valuable, right? Oftentimes, when your client side, you've run campaigns within your industry, within your niche for a long time. And so you have a strong understanding of how those campaigns perform, but not a better understanding of all that's out there and how all these different pieces come in and play. And so um, when you work with your vendor partners, whether it's talking with your contact at Google or Facebook or working with an agency, they can help you understand and pull resources for historical benchmarks across industry, campaign type and execution. Knowing these benchmarks is a really great place to start in order to identify how much you need to spend, right? Because a demand generation campaign, if you're trying to get conversions, is going to cost a little bit more to deliver impressions than if you just want to get awareness on a campaign. And so knowing that and knowing what that that difference is, is going to be a great start. The other piece is understanding how large your audience size is and how much of your audience needs to know about your message in order to drive results. So a good rule of thumb typically is, especially when we're going for like awareness campaigns, we want to go for a broader audience and probably aim for about 30% of your audience to hear your message about once a week. And so building that in alongside your benchmarks can help sustain a successful campaign. So those are things that we can start off with. And, you know, as, as we're thinking about media sufficiency from the, from the very beginning of a campaign, again, not knowing how the specific campaign is going to perform, but, but, you know, using best practices and, and our, our best, our best understanding. Once a campaign's running, though, then what what can you do? Obviously, having the benefit of data from the actual campaign, you know, what, what are some ways to determine media sufficiency or to you know when you need to make adjustments? The key metric to keep an eye on for us is is frequency, and that means the amount of times that a person has seen an ad over a given time period. So if an audience member sees an advertisement too many times in a day, week, or a month, they can go blind. I'm sure we have all experienced this where you go to a website and all of a sudden you're retargeted with display ads for the next three weeks and you don't even see them (laughs) after two or three days. And so this is what is important to keep an eye on as you're running. The, The problem is not so much a problem. The challenge is, is that it's different for each platform. We see that, you know, seeing one display ad every week is not enough to actually drive an impact, but seeing 20 of them is way too many. So for example, on standard display ads, we try to max out at around seven to 10 per week per person. You have to think about all the different sizes and placements and locations um, that it follows you around the internet. So seven to 10 on a display, but for like social media style, if you're thinking in the newsfeed or if you're thinking in um, like a reels or a stories type post, we try to max out at around two per week, especially because these ads are often a little bit more expensive to place. So we want to make sure that they're making an impact, uh, but we're not burning people out. And then that's similar for for video placements like on YouTube or uh, online video programmatically. Yeah, yeah. And so you've, you've mentioned 
you know, we want to make sure that audience members are having the frequency and, and, and that's part of how you're, you're adjusting things. So that, that kind of leads to who are those people that are seeing the ads and how do we look at audience segmentation? And so, you know, I want to talk a little bit there because, you know, obviously when we talk about frequency and, you know, it's, it, a lot of this comes down to math as far as how broad, how narrow we go so we can achieve um, the right frequency. So, you know, what, what's your, what's your thought process as far as how to think about, you know, broad versus narrow audience segments? Um, do each have a place? And if so, you know, when would you recommend each approach? You know, I, I might have a mildly hot take, as hot of a take as you can have on, <laughs> on audience sizes. But uh, I think in like the, the mid to late 2010s, the focus was really on how segmented we could get our audiences. We were getting all these technologies that enabled us to be like, I, I want to target Greg. I'm going to just target Greg with my ads. Um, and you could target exactly who you wanted to and didn't waste any impressions on anyone else. And that, I think, was great in theory. But in practice, when you're actually running these ads it falls apart um, because extremely small audiences have troubles converting for a couple reasons. One is inaccurate data. The example that I usually give here is one point in time I was putting together an audience of higher income folks in St. the St. Louis area. And so I remember going in and I pulling together that audience with third party targeting and we were able to target around 50,000 people with our ads. That's great. But when you look at the actual demographic data, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that fell into that income targeting that I wasn't able to actually target with my ads because I could only target the people that this third party service had identified. So by going after that audience, you're missing out on this huge chunk. So the second piece is it actually requires the target to use the platform, right? Um, with the exception of maybe something like programmatic display, which follows you around the internet, you, you actually have to have a Facebook account in order to get Facebook ads. You have to have a TikTok account in order to get TikTok ads. So if you're targeting a really narrow target of less than a thousand people, if they don't have the account on the platform that you're using, or if they use Bing instead of Google, you're going to miss out on targeting that person. And then lastly, oftentimes when we're segmenting really narrowly, we want to go after only decision makers, which is great once again in theory, but the final decision maker is not the only person that needs to be impacted by your messages. So you end up missing out on all these people that could be influential in the decision-making process, especially when it comes to something like B2B or longer tail decision-making products. And, and so you end up missing out on a lot by segmenting too small. So that's a really long-winded way of saying that I'm a fan of, of leaning more broad. Identify how you like your segments and then take two decently steps back. Because all these ad platforms are incentivized to give you results, and they use their artificial intelligence to identify who's responding within the audiences you're targeting. So if you go a little broader, you still might end up targeting the exact people you want with your budget. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think on a slight tangent, I think this is where also personalization of in other channels and, and methods has caught up to advertising segmentation and things. So to your point about, you know, narrow versus broad, it's like when, when all we could do was really narrowly target a person with advertising, we did that. But now I think, you know, again, other, many other technologies have, have kind of caught up. And so we can personalize stuff to, you know, to your point, we can personalize stuff to Greg on other channels because we know it's Greg, but when we don't 
you know, when, when we're advertising, um, totally agree with your, your, your rationale there. Before we continue, let's take a quick break. If you're like many marketing leaders today, you're inundated with a need to improve the customer experience across an increasing number of channels and touch points, all while ensuring your team is performing well, innovating, and continuously improving. So how do you find the time to determine what's next for you, your team, your brand, and your customers? My company, GK5A, can help. Whether it is advisory services, evaluation of marketing technology platforms and solutions, or digital agencies and implementation partners, or assistance with creating strategic roadmaps and prioritization of efforts, we've done it all and served as an ally to Fortune 1000 brands and industries like financial services, healthcare, consumer electronics, professional services, and more. You can learn more about these services and contact us at www.gk5a. That's www.gk5a.com. Now let's get back to the show. Next thought there is, in addition to narrow versus broad audience segments, there's also multiple segments. You know, most most larger advertisers are going to have a few segments that they're Mm-hmm. that they're working and, and needing to compare and, and test. And so, you know, having, having worked with this a lot as you, as you have, how do you think about ways to compare or contrast and, and test different audience segments? You know, what, what are some best practices you'd recommend? Yeah, uh, there's, there's two main be- best practices, especially when you're trying to test and compare. The first is make sure that you're using built-in overlap tools to make sure you're actually targeting unique and distinct audiences. Sometimes you can go about targeting an audience in two completely different ways, um, but you end up overlapping and targeting the exact same people. So you're not going to get actually different results and you won't be able to learn from that. This also applies to creative. You want to make sure if you're testing segmented messaging that you want to drive a true difference in performance to see if you're actually getting those performance gains. So you want to make sure you've got radically different creative. This means not just changing a a headline or a background image, but make something that's actually going to make an impact so you can measure that distinct difference. When it comes to building audiences, I think it's also important to, to think and get creative about the different ways that you can target the same person. Use exclusions and inclusions in different ways so that you can zero in on that person in maybe some unique ways. Got it, got it. So how do you think about balancing segment size with targeting specificity? You know, what are, what are the benefits and trade-offs of each? And, and when might you rec- recommend a larger segment size versus a more specific one? Uh, Yeah, I like to think about it in terms of building segments and targeting specifically, you know, it it can be really easy to get lost in all the possible variables that you can add to a list. If you're trying to target magazine readers, you might try to add every single magazine that you could possibly think of into that targeting list. My priority way to build a, a segment or an audience is to think about how accurate is the way that you're targeting. How close is the data to the platform? So to go back to that income example, uh, platforms like Google or Facebook, they don't necessarily have income assessments baked in. They're pulling that data through third-party providers in order to target people on their platform. Alternatively, something like age or something like interests that people are actively engaging in these platforms, that's data that Facebook or Instagram or TikTok has readily available, and it's like first party for them. 
So I like to try and use the the data that is first party on their platforms in order to zero in on my audience. Because once you start pulling in these third party factors, you start bringing in some inaccuracies or you start really narrowing your audience in a way that doesn't actually represent who you want to target. So the more you have trust in the accuracy of that audience, the more decisions you're going to be able to make stemming from the actions that they take. Got it. Got it. So last topic I wanted to talk through is, um, you know, so we've talked about initial planning and benchmarking, and we've talked about how we look at a campaign currently in flight. Let's kind of building on the, the last topic. Let's talk about continuously improving campaigns and, you know, just how ongoing iteration is going to drive not only greater learnings for the current campaign as well as other campaigns, but also just better outcomes for the advertiser. So what what are some of the best practices that you would recommend to involve continuous improvement uh, in some of these campaigns? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is set up a process for pacing. What pacing means to me is that you're making sure that you're spending the right amount in platform every day or, or around that number, right? Making sure that you can catch any crazy anomalies or delivery issues really quickly is, is great for making sure that everything's running smoothly. However, this regular pacing is not necessarily for optimizing or evaluating trends. That I like to typically do on a monthly basis. Now, this could change based on the nature of your business. We work uh, heavily on B2B brands, which means they have slower sales cycles. So that means that we want to make sure we're capturing enough data in our platforms to catch trends. And so we look over the course of a month. However, if your business moves a little bit quicker with faster iterations, like if you're a, a D2C brand, you might be able to get enough data really quickly, maybe more on a weekly basis. Evaluate and make sure that you're not making strong strategic decisions in between those trend evaluations. Because sometimes the data can steer you in the wrong direction. Um, if you're looking too quickly, you want to look at a, a macro trend as opposed to a micro trend day to day. And then lastly, when you test, it can be really easy, especially as whether it's individual marketers or people that are trying to move really quick. When you test, it can be tempting to try to test three or four variables at one time. I want to test audience. I want to test creative. I want to test headlines. And I want to test landing pages. Make sure that you're isolating down to one variable so that you are only measuring the success of that variable and making a decision based on it. Because if you're measuring three, four variables at one time, you can draw the wrong conclusions and steer yourself down the wrong course when you're rapidly iterating and testing. Got it. And so in addition to looking at these looking at these things on, on a continuous basis, there's also the you know, teams get running a campaign and, and they're, they're already maybe sometimes in their minds, they're already off to the next campaign. And so while all of these ideas are, are extremely helpful, it helps to operationalize these things so that it's, you know, continuous improvement is part of running the campaign itself, instead of just, it's a thing we do when the campaign isn't quite performing up to snuff or, or, or things like that. So, you know, how do you, how do you think of operationalizing this stuff within, you know, with, within a within the process of a campaign, I guess? Yeah, for us, we focus on building automated dashboards. Now, I know that that is something that pretty much everybody does, and that's great. 
the emphasis for us is to make sure that we're pulling out the right KPIs on a regular basis so that we spend time evaluating the data, identifying changes and and asking questions as opposed to like trying to manipulate the data in the right way so that we can represent it to whether it's our clients or our clients uh, higher ups. And so as long as we spend less time copy pasting data, it spends more time and more of my team's time, more of your team's time evaluating and finding unique successes and opportunities and ultimately learning from those things. If you spend less time copying and pasting, you spend more time identifying the actual successes so that you can learn from it. Um, that can be a hole that I find a lot of teams get into. The, the other piece there would be creating a reasonable expectation for testing. Um, this ties back into testing only one variable at a time, but sometimes operations, organizations like to test 15 different things at a time and it can get really confusing and they can all seem relatively meaningless uh, you know having too many tests in market causes confusion so making a, a steady and consistent process and isolating the metrics and the variables that are going to have the biggest impact on your bottom line and then so you can actually learn and grow from it um, one of my favorite stories is a couple of organizations ago <laughs> we I, I i had just started and we were in a test evaluation and the test was which performs better, animated vegetables or illustrated vegetables? And the output of that was, well, people engaged more with the animated vegetables. My question to them was, okay, well, does that mean that every creative from now on is animated vegetables? Like, wh what does this right. mean for us? So making sure that your tests are impactful and actually impact your bottom line so that you can learn and grow and, and build on them is, is huge for operators operationalizing continuous improvement yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i think to your point it's like you know it's learning the right lessons but learning the right lessons takes constructing the right tests right you know so yeah def def definitely agree i've i've run into that many times as far <laughs> as well you know this one time we used the color yellow in this and so now we always use yellow it's like <laughs> The world is continually changing. You know, it's it's the, that's why they call it continuous improvement, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Austin, thanks so much for joining the show. Um, one last question before we wrap up here. Um, you've given a lot of great advice already. Lots of stuff that that people can can use in their in optimizing their campaigns. What's what's one next best action you'd recommend for those listening who want to start optimizing their campaigns today? I think that the next best action would be to create a testing format. Outline what you're testing, the variable, what you're changing, and the hypothesis of what you think will happen with that test. I think that just putting that down to paper and getting people to commit to it and then building a test around that is hugely valuable to driving that continuous improvement and being able to showcase that to your team and around. Great. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Austin Frederick, Director of Digital Media at the Office of Experience for joining the show. And thanks again to the Office of Experience for sponsoring this special episode. You can learn more about Austin and the Office of Experience by following the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.gregkilstrom.com. That's G-R-E-G-K-I-H-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. 
To get a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, visit my website or you can find it on Amazon or other retailers. The Agile brand is produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, they craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, stay agile. Switching to Shopify helps you sell smarter at every stage of your business. Take full control of your brand with your own custom online store. Wow, looks amazing. Find more customers with our easy-to-use marketing tools. Piece of cake. And let the best converting checkout on the planet do its thing. Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Switch to Shopify today for a $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.